Joining me today is Dr. Eric Schmidt, Professor of Political Science. Uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, James. Eric, uh, could you tell our viewers a little bit about your background and about your courses that you teach and uh, anything else that you think is interesting about your, uh, your background? Well, I'd be happy to. So I am originally from Michigan, West Michigan, Kalamazoo to be precise. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a, a real place. I usually open my classes explaining that, in fact, that's not a made-up name. I'm from a place called Kalamazoo. Sure. Um, and matter of fact, you spent some time in Kalamazoo. I know Kalamazoo well. Yeah, yeah uh, working for Western Michigan University. Um, I uh, did my PhD at Louisiana State, though, so mm -hmm. I kind of went from the north to the far south. And there I studied under James Stoner. I wrote a dissertation on Walter Lippmann. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we'll bring that up and have a little conversation about it today. But I seem to have landed in the middle of those two uh, here at Kentucky Wesleyan College here in Owensboro. Uh, and I couldn't be happier about it. I was looking for a small liberal arts school to teach in. I knew, uh, knew from my undergrad experience, which was at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, that I enjoyed the liberal arts experience. And mm -hmm. even from the first second I entered grad school, I knew I didn't want to go to an R1. I knew I wanted to come teach at a teaching school. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Wesleyan has been a dream in that regard. Uh, it really has been. Uh, I love teaching political science. I love teaching political theory, uh, especially. I love teaching about American political institutions. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I have great students here. Uh, I am the sole faculty member uh, in political science. And the, while there are challenges associated with that, there are also many blessings, right? I get to teach a wide variety of courses. I get to do a lot to work with individual students across the multiple different subfields of political science. And I've always kind of been interested as a uh, generalist anyway. I mean, I think all, all good theorists are kind of to some degree generalists. I teach across the four major domains of political science, comparative politics, international relations, political philosophy, and American politics. Hmm. Um, but like I said, my favorite are the political philosophy classes. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the curriculum in political science and legal studies as well? Right, yeah. So I, I am the uh, program coordinator for both legal studies and political science here. And uh, the curriculum uh, across both is designed for students to be prepared for professional school and graduate school. I try and make sure they're going to get the most sophisticated education they can here, and I do most of that by teaching them how to write. I mean, writing is a sophisticated form of thinking, and by teaching them how to represent their ideas, submit them to writing, uh, it trains them for multiple different formats, and that allows me to emphasize not only the professional uh, aspects, the ones that will get them career ready, but really also the more humanistic, right, the things that speak to the mission of a liberal arts college, right, is to provide a place for the individual to develop into who they were meant to be, rather than sort of putting them into some crucible to prepare them for um, the, the working world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the original ideal, idea and I ideal behind liberal arts, is you know, arts that are worthy of a free person, helping them figure out who they're, who they're meant to be. So the, the curriculum in political science, as I already mentioned, proceeds through um, all the major subfields. Uh, forces them to take not just courses that teach them how to be, um, you know, good citizens, emphasize citizenship, um, but uh, also the uh, ones that could prepare them for, um, you know, graduate school, um, you know, masters in uh, public administration, public policy, things like that. But also in legal studies, um, prepare them for careers in law, um, whether that means law school or something else. Um, 
right? Uh, in both cases, again, emphasize writing as a way to sort of develop the critical thinking skills. Uh, and we are blessed to have a strong um, criminal justice uh, program here. And uh, legal studies shares some uh, parts of its curriculum with them. So students that want to come here and study law, whether they're interested in corporate law or criminal law or anything in between, uh, they're going to have a real strong foundation from which to do to launch their careers. Mm -hmm. And you've gone through some restructuring in, in both programs recently. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the future, I think, is bright for what that's going to look like, uh, maybe moving towards a American Studies program that can offer a... Uh, offer emphases in law, politics, history. Um, maybe we'll draw broadly from other disciplines like communication and religion. Uh, I'm excited to see what the, the future holds with that. Uh, I think that has offers a lot of opportunity for students, uh, not just uh, getting them career ready, but also, again, informing, informing citizenship, informing their lives in ways that extend beyond right, the professional arena. Mm. So I want to come back to political science as sort of foundational to the liberal arts education. Um, but I want to move into uh, your dissertation, oh, okay. uh, Walter Lippmann. And uh, before we get into Walter Lippmann, I want to get your thoughts on biography uh, in general. And I know you, you don't think about your, your dissertation as a biography. It was more of a sort of an intellectual biography, an evolution of someone's uh, political thinking over the course of the 20th century. Um, but biography is a fascinating, I think, form of scholarship um, and a wonderful way of telling a story um, by you know, personalizing it. Um, what drew you to Walter Lippmann originally and what aspects of his story did you find m most compelling? Well, you know, oddly, I think it was a passing conversation with my uncle, uh, Patrick Schmidt, who's a, uh, a lobbyist, works in Washington, D.C., and, you know, he grew up idolizing Walter Lippmann, and he just mentioned something offhandedly about him, and then I happened to read um, The Phantom Public in an undergrad course, just kind of like, you know, days later, I noticed it was on the syllabus, and then read it later in the semester, and Lippmann's insistence in that work that the public really exists only as a phantom. Uh, right, it's not really a real thing, and the challenges that it poses for democracy, whose the basis of democracy is you know, consent of the governed, when the public as a whole has trouble agreeing on the basic facts that underpin their consent, and what sense can they be said to be truly giving their consent? And that problem just immediately struck me as one that you know not only defined, and I guess when was that in two thousand two thousand eight. 2009, uh, the politics of that time, but I think characterized, I think, modern liberal politics in general, uh, right, is disagreement about the underlying facts and a sort of confused morass of, uh, of, of doxa, of opinions, uh, and, right, no, no real sense, uh, something lost um, about, right, the, the agreements that society makes of, you know, why live together in the first place, what's the good life, what's the good regime. Right, and Lippmann was just really sensitive to that in that in that work, despite speaking from his background as a as a liberal, as a progressive. Uh, right, I I thought his intellectual honesty working through that problem was just was arresting, and I just couldn't I couldn't put him down. So when it came time years later uh, to develop a dissertation topic, I was kind of naturally drawn back to back to Lippmann. Mm -hmm. 
So tell me a little bit about your research into Lippman and how involved in his personal life you became. Right, yeah. So and I, I agree with what you said about uh, biography being an interesting way to drive a research agenda, but also just to arrive at some clear understanding, um, right? I mean, in, it's in the lived experience that you give meaning and expression to ideas which can sometimes become too abstract if you leave them alone and, you know, try and engage them strictly at an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's precisely that um, that made Lippmann, I think, a useful person to uh, write about and address because his career spans. I mean, the title of Ronald Steele's beautiful biography of, of Walter Lippmann uh, is you know, Walter Lippmann in the American Century, right? I mean, he was the man of the American Century. His career spanned the entire um, 20, well, not quite the entire 20th century, but he begins right amidst all the uh, optimism of uh, the early 20th century and you know, deals with the collapse in the face of the First World War um, goes through the um, reorientation of society in the in the 20s, the rise of in the during the Great Depression, the rise of the New Deal politics, mm-hmm. wrestles with the overreach of executive authority as he saw it, and ultimately culminates in a sort of plea for the rehabilitation of traditions of civility, a sort of ambiguous term that he tries to give meaning to, and then ends, you know, uh, with seeing the U.S. get involved in in Vietnam and feeling, in his words, that we were approaching a sort of a minor dark age. Um, now, that's important because in his role and having his finger on the pulse of those events uh, is important because he was a journalist too. He wasn't just writing these books of political philosophy. He was actively engaged in trying to shape the world. And as a political scientist, as someone that tries to gain perspective on events and tries to gain some reflective distance from them, right? You have someone who's, who's actively doing both Right. I mean, as, as far as, you know, it's not exactly, you know, using a Petri dish working in a lab exactly. But when you can sort of, you know, someone's already trying to engage uh, that sort of reflective uh, perspective. Right. That man, that does so much, so much work for you is, is to help you wrap your head around those events. So if you want to understand, if you want to understand American history and American intellectual history, uh, whether it's my dissertation, my book or or Ronald Steele's biography, or any of the other you know numerous great works that have been done on on Lippmann, man, he is a, a great place to start because mm-hmm. he's he's got his finger in just about everything uh, in in the twentieth century in America. Mm. Well, so so the research process and you know getting into the full scope, he had a profound impact on a modern American political theory, but also in journalism, he had a huge audience. Um, Talk about his career for, for those that are not familiar with Walter Lippmann. Talk about where his career started, where it ended, and and the reach of his his um, audience. Well, his his column today and tomorrow was the most widely syndicated in America, and I, people literally didn't know what to think about the day's events uh, until they had read Walter Lippmann's column. And my uh, my next door neighbor, who was a history professor at uh, Western Michigan, actually, Dave Houghton, uh, said something almost exactly, uh, he said almost exactly that to me uh, when I told him I was going to write on Walter Lippmann. He's like, yeah, man, I, I, I felt disoriented until I read Lippmann. I didn't know what was going on, right, until I, I got to tap in to see what he thought. And I think there are two reasons for that, and I'm not going to put words into Dave's mouth here, but I, I think there are two reasons for that. It's one, right, Lippmann is like, actively trying to engage the questions of the day, um, but two, right, he becomes a sort of barometer for public opinion him, himself, right? And you can where Lippmann stands on certain things with the sort of long record that he has, trying to understand um, 
American events and American culture, both as a philosopher but also as a journalist, I think really just makes him a u- unique entry uh, into understanding the American mind. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's, that's again, what drove, um, drove my interest. So the, the course of his career, I mean, he begins, he goes to Harvard and he wants to be an art historian, <laughs> right? And, and the sort of the quality of a mind that begins there and ends in the most, I mean, that's transcendent in a way too, but sort of the, the mud, the practicality of, of, of politics and, and journalism, right, uh, is, is something to ponder at too. Um, but uh, from his original idea to be a, an art historian, he published a couple of uh, little things in newspapers at uh, Harvard and kind of got a taste for it. He wrote something that William James, who was then retired, kind of shows up at his door, knocks on his door, and tells him, young man, I enjoyed what you wrote there. And that sort of you know, made him perk up a little bit. He began a friendship with uh, James because of it. Um, but uh, from there, um, really, he uh, began he began writing in earnest, and he under a tutelage of uh, Lincoln Steffens, uh, you know, who wrote the famous Shame of Cities, um, right? Uh, and though he was a sort of Steffens was himself a sort of um, evangelist, progressive crusader, uh, right? Uh, what Lippmann seemed to take take from him was not so much that intellectual perspective, but the interest in good fact based reporting. And from his uh, work with um, uh, Steffens, which, which led to, um, you know, uh, uh, antitrust reforms, uh, tangible reforms, um, with work with Steffens sort of just naturally, you know, led to a career in journalism. He helped found uh, the New Republic uh, with Herbert Crowley. Um, and uh, from there, he just had a, he had a vantage point to sort of wield influence in American politics. He came close with the... Uh, Wilson administration in particular, um, and uh, of course, then falling out with the Wilson administration uh, later, he became you know the New Republic gained a reputation as an insider journal, uh, Lippmann as someone who had influence, and you know if you're a journalist that has influence and right is blessed to be able to you know have sources to you know uh, you're you're going to become trusted, mm-hmm. and uh, they parlayed that into a, a long career engaged with. Uh, reporting on American events, and he could not help, as a product of reporting on American events, uh, come to observe the difficulties in uh, trying to report fact. Um, like, like I said, with uh, under uh, Stefan's tutelage, um, he came to think, uh, and perhaps rightfully so, tried to understand journalism as, you know, the goal of journalism is to tell the truth and shame the devil. Um, but he worked as a propagandist in World War I, and uh, during his time there, he thought, I mean, naively, he went into, he went into the, the war thinking that his job was going to be to separate truth from untruth, right? And butting heads with a man named George Creel uh, there, um, Creel kept censoring um, syndicalist or socialist pamphleteers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And Lippmann was like, what do you, no, what do you, what do you, why are you censoring things, right? The goal is just to make sure that the enemy is not, you know, winning the, the propaganda war, right? All we need to do is separate the truth and let people make up their own mind about it. And mm. Lippmann was very, very disillusioned um, as a product of his experience there. Mm. Um, and that sort of mirrored the, um, I guess, his fallout with Wilson and the Wilson administration, and, and more broadly, I think, the ideals behind, um, you know, Wilsonian idealism, right? The idea that, uh, idea, ideas that uh under which he sold World War I to the American public, make the world safe for democracy, in other words. 
uh, right? And Lippmann starts, you know, really questioning whether it's possible to uh, make the world safe for democracy when we can't even make the world safe for honest discourse about facts. Um, in 1920, I think, he publishes a sort of Pricey to uh, what would then later become um, his most famous work, Public Opinion. But in 1920, he published a uh, book called uh, Liberty in the News, where he uh, evaluates the New York Times coverage of the Bolshevik Revolution. And he's, it's something like 93 times, he says, on no less than 93 t occasions, the Times uh, uh, reassures its readers that the Bolsheviks are on the verge of collapse and, you know, we'll, and this whole thing will eventually come to naught. And it had no actual, you know, basis in reality. And the reporting didn't have any basis in reality. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was mollifying, it was anodyne, it wasn't reporting. Mm -hmm. and, and he sort of, and this led him to that question that I mentioned earlier, and I think the one that really preoccupies him as a thinker and as a journalist is, right, the basic principle of democratic freedom, uh, of, of democratic governance, is consent of the governed. And if people are basing that consent on, on the pictures they have in their heads and not on real events, right, is the consent that they're giving to democracy legitimate and is mm. therefore their democracy legitimate? Mm. Right? And that's the, that's the issue of mass politics. And Littman being this window into the early part of the 20th century, that gives us a frame to understand our current space, uh, our current political space and our discourse, which is a different version of, and, but I think the term still applies, a, a mass democracy. Hmm. Well, I'm most interested in that, um, that sort of evolution of character that Littman goes through throughout yeah. his career um, and how he reorients himself continually and how he informs himself but his commitment to truth and truth telling is is interesting given our you know current political climate um what thread can you see throughout his career and what issues does he struggle with as he evolves as a journalist and as a political thinker i think that is the question right i mean uh, and that's what's sort of was interesting to me when I was reading the secondary literature on Littman, right? There's a tendency to want to see in him, you know, progressives will see in him this great uh, betrayer of the progressive faith, like this idea that, um, you know, you should take the side of the common man against all, you know, forms of concentrated authority and power and privilege, uh, right? And certainly his first two books, Preface to Politics and Drift and Mastery, they sound like romps, normal romps through the, you know, stable of progressive values and ideas and they you know they're 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 more than just lists but i mean you can be forgiven for reading them uh that way especially drift and, and mastery but uh right and then they see him moving later in his career uh and culminating in the good society and essays in the public philosophy he sounds like you know a, a conservative that would fit right in in some ways at least in the uh essays in the public philosophies fit right in at the Heritage Foundation or, or something of the sort, right? And it's totally incomprehensible if you look at it from a certain perspective. How could this be the same person? He's obviously undergone a great change. On, other hand, on the other hand, right, um, right, there are those that are tr going to try and claim, right, he was always uh, this sort of humane liberal, and you can see that in his early works too. Um, I kind of took a different, uh, different tact. I mean, I, I see in Littman um, a sort of consistency that is unideological, and that's what I think makes him interesting as a thinker. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, he is a second-rate philosopher in terms of a, being a philosopher, but uh, that doesn't make him any less brilliant of a of a thinker and 
um, someone who engages in analysis of, of American affairs and American intellectual um, currents. But it's the, it's the idea that continues to arrest him is how can people be free, right? How can we be free enough to be worthy of a democracy? Um, and that, I think, imply, uh, um, keeps him internally consistent throughout his career. And whatever sort of vicissitudes his career and you know, thought undergo, I mean, he's just moving around as he's moving from point A to point B. And right, the point, point A is, well, people don't really understand the terms under which they've been organized and, and organized themselves in society. And how do we make sure right, that they come to understand those? in such a way that allows them to be free and democratic, mm -hmm. right? He stays 100% consistent on that question throughout his entire career. And even if he moves er in, you know, um, in circles early on that seem progressive and totally unreconcilable uh, with his later work, I think there is just strong consistency when you dig into um, the analysis there. Um, and I tried to, I tried to, tried to show that uh, in my, in my, so the, you know, liberalism and progressivism, I mean, he wrestles with this question. Right. And so do we all. Uh, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I mean, the, if we kind of define progressivism as uh, the taking the side of the, of the little man, the common man against, uh, you know, uh, recalcitrant pockets of, uh, of or, or arching uh, sense of power and privilege and authority, right? Uh, and, you know, this is obviously a 30,000 foot sort of definition, but uh, it uh, in no way is obvious where to draw the line between that version of progressivism and the idea of, um, you know, political liberalism, sort of institutionally driven, focus on the individual uh, and consent of the governed, um, right? In what way is that not compatible with wanting to improve the conditions of the common man? In fact, you know, the genesis of both uh, is in Right, the uh, you know uh, birth of liberalism out of the Enlightenment, right? And if you take uh, Thomas Hobbes' sort of quick definition of liberalism as the insistence that every man take every other as his equal, and the the breach of that principle is pride, uh, right? Or if you're going to try and define uh, liberalism and you know through another another means, I mean, there's something fundamental about equality uh, to liberalism. What what does it truly mean to be equal? Well, in the beginning, liberalism, you know, could be sort of understand as a version of creating the conditions under which people could be free. And uh, equality seemed to sort of naturally follow if you remove the obstacles associated with the on-seed regime, the previous regime, uh, right, the monarchies of, of Europe, then, right, being free, you know, equality would naturally follow. It wasn't until you know the early 19th century and mid 19th century, and I think this is Alexis de Hopeville's um, real insight and contribution, um, major contribution to um, political thought, is recognizing and drawing out precisely in what ways freedom and equality actually don't go hand in hand, right? Uh, and the sort of quick way to uh, explain that or to think think about it, I mean, people are born with natural differences. Right, and if you make every, if you free everyone from all sort all their constraints, right, those differences are going to emerge, and people are no longer going to be equal, right. And the, the concomitant, I mean, in, in, in the environment where this is happening, um, you're also having the material conditions, material well-being become you know much more equal, in the sort of psychological or moral psychology of democracy is that as you see people become more and more equal, you inevitably uh, are faced with the you, you're, you're granted more empathy and sympathy because you see yourself in your neighbor, 
much more often than you would if they were, you know, uh, a king or a duke, or and you were just, you know, a little peasant or something like that, right? Uh, but when you see everyone as your everyone as your equal, how can you stand that they have different things than you or believe different things than you? It starts to gnaw at you a little bit. Mm -hmm. and that's what you know Tolfil's worried about. He thinks there's a sort of he says he watches the democratic tide walk, come in and with a sort of religious terror, right? And this is, of course, he's an aristocrat and, you know, suffering under the, uh, you know, um, in the aftermath of the French terror, of course, right? But it's not just, it's not just that. He's speaking as a sociologist, as a political scientist, right? Um, he, as an observer of um, human nature, he's, he's worried, right? How could democracy ever be made, you know, how can it ever be made profitable? How can it ever be uh, made noble, right? It's always going to trend towards a sort of, um, you know, listless lust for equality that just, uh, you know, that lowers everybody instead of raises everybody up. And he says this seems to him to be the, the future of it. And he thinks that America has, and when he's writing, and, you know, the book is published in two volumes in 1835 and 1840, I think, uh, when they're... Um, so Jacksonian America, right, and all that's going on then too. But uh, um, right when he when he publishes the book, he's he's looking, I think, for a way to sustain liberalism, right, and he sees our religious inheritance as being something that helps push back um, on our on our on maybe the the facile love of material well-being and setting our sights beyond the horizon. And I think he sees that as something that can help lift up. Um, uh, the democratic spirit, keep it focused on things beyond just, you know, petty petty squabbles, um, right, and can hold a society together. But Tocqueville points out, uh, and nobody, I don't think you can you can make a contrary argument. The you cannot make of a liberal society the goal of that society the health and well-being of the soul, right? That sort of fundamentally undermines what a liberal democracy is, um, right? Which is a sort of agreement between the civil society and the state, and the state's going to stay out of the civil society's way so that people can make up their mind on their own, right, what, what's meaning and what's, what's good. Mm. But uh, as, you know, 18th century Enlightenment thinker John Locke said in uh, uh, chapter 21 of his essay concerning human toleration, he says, uh, right, uh, well, if you let people choose what they want to be, some are going to choose, to, you know, sporting and hawking, and others mm -hmm. are going to choose sobriety and, and mm -hmm. riches. And, right, uh, so you have in, in civil society people defining all sorts of different types of meaning for themselves. Right. It's a personal commitment to freedom. And it, yeah, and it's a personal commitment to freedom and what happens if it starts to fade, right. right? And of the things that can make it fade, man, feeling like you don't know, you can't separate fact from fiction, mm -hmm. right? That is, that is, you know, enemy number one for starting to feel like you have a meaning and a purpose. And I don't hope people listening might uh, have a sense of that trying to engage in practical politics today, right? If you, I mean, maybe we've all had that experience with friends and family. Right. You, you try and have a political conversation. The idea behind so much of American democracy and democracy in general is that discourse should help us refine and enlarge right, our ideas about how we should govern and how we should live, right? but we can't even agree on sort of the basic facts uh, that underlie that discourse. How are you going to even begin to talk about what's the best life and what's the best regime and, and how can we orient civil society and the state in such a way that we can find that for ourselves if that's, you know, if you believe in the 
um, in the liberal regime, mm-hmm. right? Which which Lippin did, and I tried to defend and tried to tried to locate. Well, and he's such a he's a compelling figure because he is a thought leader, and he's someone who you can you can chart the, the sort of trajectory of American political thought throughout the 20th century within um, as a, a broad audience. Um, who who today resembles resembles Lippin in terms of his reach? Oh wow. I don't have a can answer for that. Um, I kind of wonder if the best way to think about it, though, is right. The is that the journalist means something else today mm. than it meant back then, and I think I think that understanding has is only. I think we're only slowly, kind of collectively, starting to realize that. And they can, you point to the um, decline of legacy media, the rise of social media, um, but also of outlets like, uh, like Substack, right, growing uh, for journalists that don't uh, work for these the major conglomerate, news conglomerates anymore, um, right? But I, I, th- I think it's this sort of um, mass effects of, of journalism, right? Mass politics has made its way into journalism itself. And like Littman, I, there's no one I point to that, you know, feels like Littman exactly, but uh, it's because I think the Times... I think the times call for someone who's, who's necessarily looked different than than Letman, right? I mean, it's 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 weird to say, but democracy or, or uh, journalism kind of feels like a collective enterprise. I mean, it's almost uh, you know almost sends you groping for a machine learning uh, metaphor or something like that. But it's almost like you look at the you kind of have to just take the ecology of the whole system of journalism to see everyone debating everybody's facts and your your attempt to sort out fact from fiction is not going to send you to one person who right. writes today and tomorrow, right? right? It's going to send you to sort of like re necessarily to figure out, you know, what images are being projected on, you know, shadows on the cave wall or right. to separate fact from fiction. You kind of got to take the whole thing and make a sort of from the hip judgment. About well, and it. So, so when, when people read Littman, they weren't looking for, for validation as much as direction. I think so. Right. I, uh, I, Matter of fact, he worked. I mean, it, he worked at outlets that uh, you know totally disagreed with him. Right? Mm-hmm. He wrote editorials and signed them um, for papers that uh, uh, were you know Republican papers, and uh, he was not a conservative, and he was very happy to uh, um, you know work at these places, and they were happy to have him work there because right they actually valued this valued his. Uh, his perspective and his sort of consistency. So people read him not for validation, but sometimes to be, you know, made angry, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. To have someone to disagree with, to have a foil, and that's worth the sort of basic idea again of American democracy that's undergirded by by discourse. Right? And I, would you suggest that that's the greatest legacy of his life is that commitment to truth and the search of truth, and that's really what distinguished him from his peers, and that's what gave him influence and access to greater circles of influence throughout his career. I think so. I, I think that's well put too. I mean, you can even look at that at the beginning, and you know, back to the importance of biography. Steele notes that uh, you know Lippmann was you know liked to retell this story of when he was a child. He got up out of bed. You know, the or the his maid. He was from a semi-well-to-do family, and the you know the, the maid had told him right that there was a a ghost in the house or something. And you know, so here's young Lippmann. He's really worried in, in the bed. He sees like a sheet or something on a draped over a chair or something. He doesn't know what it is and he screws up his courage and he stands up and he walks over to the sheet and he knocks it off the chair and he's like, ha, 
I've, you know, it's like set a sort of a tone for his entire career. I've dispelled the bogeys. I've, mm. you know, found, I've found truth. And, you know, the fact that he liked to retell that mm. story, I, I thought was fairly emblematic. But, you know, I also thought in, in reading that, right, I mean, right, and, and, and he became really, he attached to rationality and reason, right, as the, as the means and the motives for, um, you know, dispelling untruth, right? But what kind of stood, I, I mean, upon reflecting on it, and I, I did, um, often while I was writing the dissertation was, um, right, reason alone should have been enough to, right, dispel it without standing up and walking over and knocking the sheet off, right? I mean, if you're, uh, but it was, so it wasn't, it wasn't reason alone that fundamentally yeah. drove him. Commitment to experience. Yeah, he had to have right. that, to, yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, I think, I mean, maybe you can see that in, you know, some of the influence of some of the pragmatists, um, mm. William James foremost among them. Uh, but uh, I think uh, I, I think Littman's uh, character is one that isn't um, well captured simply as he would explain himself, mm-hmm. right? Which is a sort of um, someone someone motivated and animated by reason to discover truth alone, right? He is he's someone who who recognizes the lived experience of human beings as as messy, and I think you finally do see that. I think you do see that come out in his essays. Uh, in the public philosophy, nineteen fifty-five, um, right, which was the last major book of public right. of uh, political philosophy he wrote. Can you predict? Can you draw a trajectory between his career and 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 throughout the remainder of the twentieth century? I mean, can you see the evolution of political thought and journalism, for that matter, in Lippmann? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, maybe to some extent. I mean, the debate he has, right? So when he publishes Public Opinion uh, and 1922, and then um, uh, it's follow-up, the uh, Phantom Public, right? He's engaged in a conversation with uh, John Dewey, right? And and Dewey, who was then, if he's not now, was widely considered America's um, foremost philosopher, and he's certainly most well-known in in all the world. I mean, the conversation that he was having with Dewey there there was, um, or that that Lippmann was having with Dewey there, uh, was over well the capacity of the community for um, self-governance, right? The thing that animated uh, Lippmann throughout his life. And I think that Lippmann-Dewey debate actually continues to drive um, not just our understanding of the media environment and how it influences politics, but some of our underlying assumptions about what democracy is and whether mm-hmm. we're we're capable of self-governance, right? This idea of you know can can human beings um, are are they sufficiently r- rational? Right to dispel these bogies themselves, right as Lippmann would say, um, and and Dewey basically thinks, yeah, with education you can you you can do it, right, and with an emphasis on experience, and you know Dewey, you see this in the way that Dewey constructed his uh, uh, his own educational program, right, was to sort of expose children to the sort of progressive um, ideas ideas and 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 careers and things like that through experiential learning that they'd be able to sort of work together to. Um, Work together to to divine truth, and Lippmann is less less confident about that. He, he, I mean, the the uh, epigraph of uh, of uh, public opinion is actually uh, from chapter seven of Plato's Republic. It's the allegory of the cave, mm-hmm. right? He thinks, I mean, he, Lippmann thinks it is human nature that we are gonna we are stuck in this sort of tensional relationship between truth and untruth, and we are not going to escape it, right? And the best way to deal with it is to apply reason. And never ceaselessly apply a reason and, and hope that we arrive at some version of uh, of truth that's you know penultimate that's close to 
close to truth, but maybe maybe it doesn't quite get there. And Dewey Dewey thinks that you can. Dewey thinks you can sort of remake society into a great community and uh, right and sort of even create new values. Right? There's no for for Dewey. There's no sort of there's no foundation um, that can't human beings have a sort of degree of perfectibility to them that I think Lippmann is always skeptical of, even in his most boisterous claims from his youth. I think Lippmann thinks that there's a sort of fixity to human nature. He never leaves it, and, and, and Dewey and other progressives usually uh, don't share that. And, they, and, and Lippmann actually, on, on multiple occasions, says of, um, I think he's not speaking of progressives in this line, but um, sometimes the track kind of blends together. He's speaking of a socialist. He says, human nature is the toughest nut, nut they have to crack, right? And, and Part of what he's getting at there is that some of the underlying, you know, political and economic assumptions of, of socialism and even syndicalism and the things that Lippmann has supported, um, right, to a limited extent, right, to necessarily rest on the idea that you can change human beings uh, and that there's something there's not a fundamental part of their nature. And Lippmann's Santayana, his experience with you know Santayana is at Harvard, right, um, right, the Neoplatonist, I think led something led uh, to some degree uh, to him to believe that uh, human nature has a fixity to it. Um, and uh, that, I think, keeps him from being too easily placed in the progressive camp, but, you know, uh, again, separating progressivism and liberal, liberalism with these sort of you know, intellectual traditions alone is, is, is fraught, but, I mean, I needed, I needed a whole dissertation to, to do it, so I guess I won't go too far too far down that road. But, but to answer, really answer your question, I think the, the Dewey-Lippmann debate for people that really want to see how he predicted or how his trajectory of his career sort of informed where we are now, um, right? I think looking at that debate and Dewey's response is um, the public and its problems, um, right? I think, I think reading um, uh, public opinion, the phantom public, and then Dewey's um, the public and its problems really uh, can show you in literally 100 years Right, uh, public opinion was published in 1922. Right, so in literally 100 years, right, we're still dealing with those exact sort of questions. Um, and I think uh, there's it's a pretty quick route to be informed. And maybe it's an, I don't know, it's depressing on one hand that uh, we haven't moved too far beyond it. But also on the other hand, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot going on. I think there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic about about the future of of, of journalism and the future of you know democracy. I don't think it's all all doom and gloom, uh, even if like I mentioned before, Littman's phrase um, as he ended, ended his career in the disillusionment of Vietnam, he said, we're entering a minor dark age, right? My dark ages, even minor ones, sometimes last a little while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be optimistic about, about where we're going. And I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of innovation. I think there's a lot of good people that are, you know, possessed by the same spirit that possessed Littman, right? To uh, dispel untruth, right? To tell the truth and shame the devil. I think there are enough of those people, enough of those people out there, even if they're hidden, uh, right? That they're, we can be optimistic. That's a, that's a great point to close on. Really appreciate your time today. Professor Eric Schmidt here at Kentucky Wesleyan College. I want to thank you all for watching. I want to thank our production crew. Uh, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Great job.